the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Hey, we're glad to have you with us. Clark Hilton is engineering. James Blend is producing. Today on the program, we're going to talk with Lois Anderson later this hour. She's the executive director of Oregon Right to Life. She has an action alert uh, on House Bill 4135. Um, It was under a different number, but this has to uh, do with the legislature revisiting a piece of legislation that was introduced in the last session that would endanger patients with dementia or mental illness. And we'll tell you more about that when she joins us at about uh, the bottom of the hour. So Lois Anderson will be my guest. And then at five o'clock, we're going to talk with a congressional candidate, Mark Callahan. I had the occasion to meet him recently, and he's going to tell you a bit about his political aspirations and why he thinks he ought to be the fifth congressional district's next uh, uh, representative. We're also going to talk with uh, Dr. J. Scott Turner, author of Purpose and Desire, uh, a fascinating book that calls into question uh, the fact that uh, the science of biology uh, doesn't take into consideration purpose and intentionality in observation. So we'll talk with uh, Dr. Turner about that when he joins us a bit later. Well, I have to say that uh, the New England Patriots were the victims of a Super Bowl comeback this time around. They... MVP was uh, Nick Foles, who did a great job. He threw for three touchdowns. He caught another. The Eagles defeated the Patriots 41-33 to in Super Bowl 52 in Minneapolis on Sunday night to win the franchise's first NFL championship since 1960. Clark, your thoughts on the, uh, the Super Bowl? It was quite a game. It quite actually a game. was. I thought yeah. they were much better matched than some people had anticipated. Yeah, that may have been the best game that I have ever seen. I mean, we remember a lot of Super Bowls because maybe it was a great comeback. Yeah. But when you look back, the game itself was not all that stellar. But this was this was just punch, counterpunch, punch, counterpunch. You didn't counter know what the outcome yeah. was going to be. Yeah. Um, Patriots' Tom Brady was undeniably brilliant. He threw 505 yards. It's a Super Bowl record. Three touchdowns. Uh, but he, of course, was... Um, Strip sacked in the, in yeah. the whole thing, and yeah, and uh, the uh, Patriot defense could not stop the Eagles. No, they could not. It was um, it was amazing to watch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I am a, a Patriots fan by marriage, and so uh. we were we were in a household full of uh, fans for the Eagles. So it was an interesting. Uh, oh, evening. that yeah. <laughs> we just look at one another, and sometimes I'd pat him on the back. It's okay, Dan. There's always next year. We don't know <laughs> if the. Uh, Patriots quarterback's going to be back next oh, year. Oh, we do. He's back. He's back? You think uh-huh. so? Oh, yeah. I thought he might have thought for a moment, man, I wish I'd retired last year because <laughs> last year was on at such a high note. No, he said that he definitely plans to play until well, there he's you go. in his mid-40s. Okay. Yeah. He wants that sixth Super Bowl ring. Yeah. yeah. And we'll see what happens. And he had one of the great years in his career. Absolutely. At 40. Absolutely. So. And the fact that he got the team there at all is pretty, yeah. pretty amazing. Yeah. So... I don't know. I, it kind of broke my narrative 
that uh, I, I told my wife, I said, and I think I mentioned on the show, too, if it's close in the fourth quarter, the Patriots are going to win this thing. And it looked like, you know, with two and two yep. minutes, 12 seconds, I said, oh, this this movie, I've seen this a hundred times before. <laughs> what we haven't seen is getting strip sacked. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, don't feel too sorry for him, though. No, I mean, he can go and look at his collection of Super Bowl (laughs) (laughs) rings, and I know they were paid handsomely to be there. It's a little disappointing for them. I'm sure they wanted to make history. But, you know, they wouldn't have actually made they would have made history for their team in the length of time it would have taken them. But there have been other teams that over a much longer period of time have earned five Super Bowl championships or six Super Bowl championships. So here's the question, right? Yeah. So they're losing their offensive coordinator, their defensive coordinator. Belichick is 66. Do they want to start all over? Brady's going to be 41 in the middle of next season. Are they going to, is he going to want to start all over? Or is Belichick going to say, yeah, you know, my question is this. Was this maybe the last time we're going to see this Patriots management group, I would call it, in the Super Bowl? Is this era possible. over? That's it's what in, I'm curious yeah, about. Yeah, it's entirely possible. They may want to give it one more go. But whether um, they make it or not, I yeah, don't know. That yeah. that may have been it. Well, I mean, we'll see. We'll see. But that's a long, long era of sustained excellence. Long and impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, following the Philadelphia Eagles 41-33 victory. I'm sorry, I get a little <clears throat> choked up just yeah, they, trying to say right it. Right after <clears throat> that, they uh, set the town on fire, which seems to be a prerequisite yeah. for this kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, anyway, um, the Dan Patrick of NBC Sports asked the uh, the coach, Peterson, um, how do you explain this, uh, that nine years ago you're coaching in high school and here you are with Lombardi Trophy? Well, Peterson responded, I loved this, kind of took the sting out of the whole thing. I can only give the praise to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for giving me this opportunity and I'm going to tell you something. I got the best players in the world and it's a resilient group. I love this coaching staff, Mr. Lurie, the owner. Uh, not only do we have the best fans in the world, we now have the best team in the world. Thank you guys. And I know some people, they poo-poo that whole thing because they assume that what he means by that is we won this because God gave us favor. He's saying, you know, I'm I'm only here because God is good and he allowed me to have the physical and mental strength to get to this position. He's not talking about the victory. But then Eagles quarterback Nick Foles, he was given the game's MVP award. Uh, when receiving his award, he said, unbelievable, all glory to God. And again, he's uh, giving glory to God for his physical ability and opportunity. He was holding his seven-month-old daughter, Lily, uh, during that presentation ceremony following the game. She, he said, obviously, Lily really likes the uh, this mic. She has no idea. And of course, she's just an infant. She doesn't know what's just happened. Eagles tight end Zach Ertz, uh, he made the same declaration of glory to God when he was interviewed after the team. Dan Patrick of NBC Sports asked him about the ga- his game-winning touchdown catch and what he was thinking when the play was called in the, hu- in the uh, huddle. Uh, Ertz responded, I better score. Glory to God. First and foremost, he went back to, you know, I want to thank the Lord for being here. We wouldn't be here without him. This team is amazing. Each and every day we go out there, we love to practice, and I think this is the foundation of this team. And wow, what a run it has been. Well, you may not know that on the Eagles team, there is quite a cadre of uh, Christian men and from the coach on down. So it's been kind of fun, not just Super Bowl comments uh, when given the opportunity, but they have been very outspoken about their faith. In fact, I have a link on my uh, the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page if you'd like to hear from some of the team members sharing their testimony. So that was a great consolation uh, for me through this whole thing, knowing that these are some pretty good guys 
who love the Lord and are outspoken about their faith. So that that helped Dan Rice and I get through the uh, very difficult and painful uh, evening. Now, Clark, what did you think about the um, uh, the way this NBC handled the Super Bowl? There were some glitches along the way. There was that period, and I don't remember now which quarter it was in, where I think it was the fourth quarter, everything just went black. And we assumed, like most people watching, something must have gone wrong with our our signal or something went wrong with the television. But I learned today that it was NBC's fault that something just happened. And for a period of what, 20 seconds? Yeah. Nothing. And then uh, the halftime show, there's been a lot of criticism that the, uh, uh, it wasn't very good uh, sound balance. You couldn't hear the singing of the the whole thing. That's always never very good. That's true. But this was exceptionally poor. I thought, Hmm. Uh, although I also thought being a musician, the guy's probably so winded that he couldn't sing any more forcefully than he did, running all around the stadium uh, as he did. And uh, what about the uh, commercials? Did you have a favorite? I thought most of them were just like they spent $5 million for that. <laughs> no. I thought one of the uh, the Tide commercials was funny. Yeah. And that uh, I think the the one that was the spoof on Dirty Dancing with... Um, the football players. Yeah, yeah. That was funny. I think that's gotten a lot of... Uh, yeah, the worst, uh, at least according to public opinion, as it's expressed online, was the Dodge Ram ad that with Dr. Martin Luther King. It was, was such tacky. a mismatch that it just, all of us just sat there, what What just happened? What? Yeah. How did that connect? And the other thing I would say, and this is fairly common, I think, in watching commercials, which I don't do often, but make a point of doing during the Super Bowl, sometimes there's such a disconnect between who the sponsor of the ad is and the whole rigmarole of the ad itself it's not very effective at linking uh, the entertainment factor of the commercial, or at least the attempt at it, and the thing itself. I thought Tide did a good job at a lot of them. I wasn't quite sure what was the what was the product in yeah, way too <laughs> high concept. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, which is uh, what I guess you do when you're spending five million dollars. Yeah, you, you, I, some, I suppose somebody in the commercial department is a frustrated filmmaker. <laughs> Well, let the frustration continue. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 22 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. Coming up in our next segment, we're going to talk with Lois Anderson. She's executive director of Oregon Right to Life. She has an action alert on House Bill 4135. Listen up and have a pencil and pad handy. Well, Wall Street continued a broad sell-off today as the Dow plunged a record 1,175 points amid inflation fears. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed at 24,345. The S&P 500 fell 113 points at 2,600. The Nasdaq Composite dropped 273 points at 6,900. The Dow fell as much as 1,500 points in the afternoon trading, the largest intraday drop in history. The blue chip index's 4.6% decline reflected its worst day since at least August of 2011. Coming off its worst week in two years, the Dow wiped out its uh, 2018 gains with the uh, pullback today. Well, stocks have lost steam with investors rather focusing on the potential for faster inflation growth. Job gains in January fueled those concerns, and that turned a spotlight on the Federal Reserve and its timeline for interest rate hikes. They're coming. A stronger than expected gain of 200,000 U.S. jobs was uh, seen as raising the odds that the central bank 
Bank will increase its benchmark rate in March. The report also offered more evidence that the U.S. economy is gaining strength with wages climbing at their strongest pace since 2009. Well, a period of higher interest rates and stronger inflation would create a stark contrast to recent years when Accommodative monetary policies headlined by the near zero interest rate helped support the U.S. economy and equities, but that won't last uh, much longer. The business climate will remain a positive for the stock market after Monday's sell-off. That's according to Bob Dahl. He's a chief equity equity strategist at Nuveen Asset Management. He went on to say that this is technical, not fundamental. This uh, economic cycle is far from over. Well, Greenberg Capital's David Greenberg, he noted that there's more traffic on the way down on Wall Street, uh, driven in part by automated trading. There's a tremendous amount of people, which isn't quite a way to say that, but it's a quote, uh, that are going to be forced out of their positions at lower rates. And uh, at CBOE Volatility uh, Index, known as the market's fear gauge, that soared more than 70% to a multi-year high, uh, yield. Uh, the yield on the benchmark 10-year Treasury note ticked uh, lower than 2.74% uh, as traders move from equities into bonds. Yields uh, fall as prices rise. So a bit of a forecast of what um, is likely to come. Well, Governor Brown dedicated her state of the state speech today to addressing the issues of Oregonians who have been left behind by the state's economic prosperity and steady job growth. Oregon's rising economic tide should be lifting all boats, she said, yet many hardworking families are still underwater. And while some Oregonians are working two jobs to get by, state economists are projecting 27,000 high-wage job openings every year through 2024, many of which will occur in the technology industry. Currently, one out of every four job openings in that industry is filled by out-of-state hires, she said. It's clear there's a gap between the skills Oregon workers have and the skills that our growing businesses need. She announced that she would launch a new program designed to provide job and skill training to help fill the gap, dubbed Future Ready Oregon. The program's goal is to close the skills gap between the workforce we have and the workforce we need to fuel Oregon's economy. The program would airmark $300 million to career technical education classes in the 2019-2021 state budget. Without providing details, she said the program would make hands-on learning programs available at every public school district in the state. The program also would offer apprenticeships in high-needs industries such as information technology, healthcare, advanced wood manufacturing, and high-tech manufacturing. Such programs already exist in Bend and Eugene, uh, the governor said. The plan includes legislation to help mid-career construction professionals to start their business by Um, Among other things, waiving all state fees and formal education requirements for those who have worked in construction for at least eight years. She said uh, she is directing Business Oregon to invest in rural areas, communities of color and Oregon's nine tribes. An example of such an investment is state funding of broadband and infrastructure to increase competitiveness in rural industries. Again, quoting from the governor, her plan also involves directing the Higher Education Coordinating Commission and Business Oregon to collaborate to match high growth industries with job training programs. In addition to job training, she said the state needs to continue to address the high cost of housing. Her office is scheduled to announce several pilot programs in the coming weeks to address the state's housing shortage and high cost of housing. The 38th governor's, uh, governor rather delivered the speech in the House of Representatives the first time as the elected governor at the Oregon State Capitol, and footage was uh, streamed live on Oregon le- Oregon's legislative website. The address kicked off the 79th legislative session and the 35-day policymaking session. This month marks
marks three years since Brown previously, the Secretary of State, succeeded Governor John Kitzhaber. He resigned uh, with influence peddling scandal and her first anniversary as elected governor. She's seeking re-election later this year, having almost uh, completed the remainder of Kitzhaber's term. A a pressing issue this session is adjusting the state's budget to account for the projected $280 million in unrealized tax revenue due to recent federal tax reform. And a week before the session commenced, leaders in the Senate extinguished uh, um, uh, most of the hope of passing a state cap-and-trade invest program uh, for industry this year. Hope wouldn't be the word I would have chosen. Uh, It's a policy, a priority for House Democrats, has the support of the governor. Senate Majority Leader Jenny Burdick uh, said that such a complex policy was better suited for the legislature's long session in 2019. The program would charge uh, industry for releasing greenhouse gases and invest the the proceeds into projects intended to curtail global warming. It essentially means higher uh, energy costs across the board in the state of Oregon for residents. Meanwhile, and I want to find this um, report that says Oregon is not uh, prepared. Here we go uh, for major disasters. Uh, According to an audit that was released last week, it says Oregon's unprepared for a major disaster like a volcanic eruption, terrorist attack, Cascadia, earthquake, tsunami, you know, all things that we could see. Um, This is according to the state's. Uh, the state audit division in a report that was released. Oregon's Office of Emergency Management, charged with coordinating the state's preparedness and response efforts, is uh, understaffed, lacks the capacity to fully do its job, auditors found. The state hazard mitigation team consists of one person. That compares with six in the state of Washington, five in Alaska, 41 in Florida. Uh, Oregon does not meet key national standards established in 2007 that cover basic elements of an effective emergency management program. Continuity plans would ensure functional government services following a disaster are either missing or incomplete. Without these plans in place, Oregon's government is at serious risks of failing to continue with or reestablish its key operations following a catastrophic event, the auditors wrote. State emergency response facilities include the Emergency Coordination Center, are in seismically vulnerable buildings. A, vul- a, a survey, rather, of uh, counties found nearly half also have emergency operations centers located in hazard zones. And Oregon hasn't corrected uh, deficiencies identified in the Cascadia Rising multi-state exercise from June of 2016. The state developed a corrective action plan in December, but it's still a draft at this point. Washington, meanwhile, finished its plan within six months. So if there's a disaster, you might want to head to Washington because Oregon's not going to be able to help you. Uh, The auditors wrote, our audit uh, found Oregon lacks key elements of an effective emergency management program. Oregon faces risks from a variety of disasters, as I mentioned, wildfires, flooding, landslides, severe weather, hazards, material spills, or terrorism. Two things come to mind. First of all, you better be prayed up. Secondly, you better have some kind of an emergency plan for you and your household. Uh, because the length of time that may take before the state is up and running to provide basic services may be longer than all of us um, imagined. And it's also a, at risk of a, a catastrophic uh, Cascadia subduction zone earthquake off the coast that would wipe out infrastructure and result in numerous deaths. So on that cheery note, we're going <laughs> to take a break. Uh, and when we come back, we'll talk with Lois Anderson. She's executive director of Oregon Right to Life. We're going to talk about an action alert that they have uh, are asking us to engage in regarding the legislature and endangering patients with dementia. Stay with us. We'll be back with Lois Anderson. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 37 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You might recall that during the 2017 legislative session, Oregon Right to Life successfully defeated Senate Bill 494, which could have deprived dementia and Alzheimer's patients of basic food and water. The bill was stopped in the State House. However, this bill, by another name, has returned in this month's legislative session, this time as House Bill 4135. And if you've already done the math, you know there's not much time to defeat it. The 2018 session is only 20 or rather 35 days compared to the 160-day 2017 session. Well, here to tell us more about it and what we need to do is Lois Anderson. She's executive director of Oregon Right to Life. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you for the time this afternoon. Absolutely. Now, I just briefly mentioned what uh, the previous bill, Senate Bill 494, would have done. Uh, uh, My understanding is House Bill 4135 is the same. Remind our listeners of what's at stake here. Well, it is. um, If you read the bill, it's not obvious what it does. And so it can be confusing. Um, So basically what it does is it removes existing protections that we have. When you fill out an advanced directive form, um, you're making assigning a healthcare representative and making decisions about what kind of care you want and don't want when you're in your last phase. That that form is actually in in law. The form is the law, which is very unique, and it 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 is there. It offers protections for people that wouldn't exist otherwise. And um, the folks that are promoting this bill are saying, "Well, it's just a fix. We just need to update the form and tinker with it a little bit." And the legislative process is kind of bulky and and messy, so we'll just take it out. And give it to a committee of professionals who who know what to do, and and we'll just we'll just be the ones that are in charge of it. And um, we're very concerned that uh, not only does it remove those protections when you fill out the form, it leaves this whole uh, big loophole of of uh, opportunity for people that do not value life at its end and do not value compassionate care for people at the end of their lives to um, muck around with something that's very important. And so at its most basic level, it removes existing protections that people have uh, to protect themselves and their loved ones in uh, when they become incapacitated. Now, uh, as we mentioned, this session is much shorter than the, uh, the session last year and the one that will come up next year. What's the status of uh, House Bill 4135, and what's your expectation with this session? Well, this session does move very fast, and they actually have scheduled this bill for a public hearing and a possible work session on Wednesday afternoon at 3 p.m. Wow. And yes, uh, <laughs> so there's there's very little time, and probably some people that are listening today may have already heard from us. We've been doing phone calls and postcards and emails and trying to get the word out because it is a very quick turnaround and we need people to contact their state representative. You can contact your state senator as well because we don't know, you know, how fast this is going to move or if it's going to move. Of course, we want it to stop. The best case scenario would be we have a hearing on it Wednesday and they decide not to to move on it. But we don't anticipate that's what's going to happen. Yeah, we you think can't that presume that. that this early. No, yeah. we can't presume anything. Yeah. We have to presume that it's going to move. So we really need people to contact their legislators and to also 
I know it's asking a lot because everybody gets tons of emails and information, but the only way we can effectively communicate with people on this kind of fast level is through social media and email. So um, if we would really like for people to go to our website and sign up to get our email alert, uh, to follow our Facebook page so that they can get the information. We're not going to have time to do a mailing. We're not going to have time to do a phone bank. You know, it really is going to have to be by by that kind of immediate communication to let people know what the next step is. What we're talking about is the removal of important patient protections that would allow a health um, a healthcare representative to make a decision that may be contrary to the patient's will. There's a presumption of consent, uh, and, and it removes it from the domain of a statute to a, a I guess, guess you'd say, just much less reliably... Um, uh, oversight group of uh, that would uh, in- administer all of this. Time is moving um, very quickly. There's very little of it. The best thing to do is to go to Oregon Right to Life. And you guys did a great job of providing information to explain precisely what this is about so that people are clear on what may not be clear just by reading the, the legislation. Um, so OregonRightToLife.com. Yes, OregonRightToLife.org. Thank you. If they put .com, they'll get there, too, but <laughs> directly is, is .org, yes. So we want to get that correct. So what happens next? Um, people uh, call into their lawmaker. They, they communicate. Um, what are you hoping to achieve? We're hoping that there will be enough questions about people. And I'm afraid, like, I've, I've been at the Capitol all day, and I think maybe I didn't do as good of a job as I could have initially. It's just precisely this um, really does target people who are still conscious and are still functioning, but are incapacitated in making their own decisions like Alzheimer's and dementia and other kinds of mental illness. So though, those are a particular population of people that, that we know are at risk from this, from this bill passing. And um, so what we really, what we're really hoping for is to just cause enough Questions. We need legislators. The House didn't really uh, look at this bill very closely last session. The Senate dealt with it quite a bit, and we had a lot of communication with senators. So we need that same kind of level of communication because this is not, this doesn't line up the same way as sort of unfortunately some abortion issues do. So it doesn't really matter what party your legislator is from. It really doesn't matter whether you know they're pro life or not. Um, these are the kinds of questions that aren't very often dealt with in the legislature. And so we want to slow it down. We need to slow it down. We need for legislators to hear from their constituents that they don't want this bill, that they would like um, it to stop. And at the very least, slow down the process and have a real discussion about it, which is very difficult to have in a 35-day session. Yeah. No, I think most of us thought this thing was killed last year. It's not going to be seen or heard of again. I guess that's a a, a bad um, presumption. But um, why do you think it was brought up in this very short window of the legislative session? Well, there is a group of legislators that are very determined to pass this piece of legislation. And we have yet to really understand where the fire is, what's the emergency, why, where are the problems in the system, 
um, that require us to make these kinds of major changes. And uh, that's the only explanation I have. I wish I had a better explanation, but that that is about it. We don't, they just seem very determined to pass this law um, just to tinker around is, is what they say. You know, I mean, we, we can imagine um, the reasons why they want to do it. And I think we've discussed some of them, but, but just to be c- completely honest, they're not saying this is exactly why we want this bill. Yeah, they're yeah. just they're just talking about how they want to fix it. They want to change it, and we're saying, well, um, if you try to change it, you are removing very important protections from very vulnerable people, and that's wrong. Yeah. Well, I so appreciate your drawing our attention to this and the the short uh, time frame that we have. Now, Oregon Right to Life. Uh, dot org is the place to go. And where do people leave their um, their email address so that they can get a, a quick update as needed? Uh, well, there is a sign up on the web page. They can also call our office. I'm going on the web page right now because I forgot to go in there this morning. <laughs> but there's a there's a banner right as you get on the web page, whether on your phone or on your um, on your desktop, and um, you can. And then there's also a subscribe for updates box that you can just put your email address in. So there's a couple different ways that you can you can get to um, the information that you need. If you click on if you click on the banner that says take action now on our website and go through and fill out the form, we'll automatically have your email at that point and can give you give you updates. So you can do two things at once. You can send your email to your legislator and you can be signed up to get updates. So it's very, it's very efficient. Well, I've just done that, and I um, look forward to uh, hearing from you, and I'll definitely be in touch in Salem. Thank you so much, Lois. Thank you very much, Georgie. Really appreciate your, uh, your information. And again, I want to encourage you to go to OregonRightToLife.org. At the, the uh, homepage, you're going to see subscribe for updates. You put your email address, you click sign up, and then they'll ask for a little bit of additional information. But that way you'll uh, find out precisely what's happening and when um, as quickly as is necessary for this very short session. All right, you're going to take, actually, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. 52 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a heads up, in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with uh, congressional candidate Mark Callahan. He'd like to serve in the 5th Congressional District. We'll find out why. We're also going to talk with Dr. J. Scott Turner. He's the author of Purpose and Desire. And uh, we're going to uh, talk about science, in particular biology, and why uh, intentionality and purpose are overlooked in the uh, discipline of science. And we're going to... um, Ah, we'll just leave it at that. That's all I'm going to tell you. Well, the House Intelligence Committee approved the release of the Democratic rebuttal of the GOP memo that was um, highly publicized that alleges government surveillance abuse during the 2016 uh, presidential campaign. California Representative Adam Schiff, who's the top Democrat on that panel, said, we think this will help inform the public of the many distortions and inaccuracies in the majority memo. Now, this is an interesting statement, given the fact that the vast majority of the networks, and I can't think of an exception, uh, refer to this, and they all use the same phrase as one big fat nothing burger and fail to go into any of the details. So most people don't have any idea what the 
uh, so-called distortions or inaccuracies are at all because they're not covering them. But by the way, the vote was unanimous in the committee. Now, Schiff said Democrats have given the DOJ and the FBI a copy of their counter memo and have asked them to tell them what redactions should be made for national security reasons. Uh, On Friday, Republicans on the Intelligence Committee uh, released their memo from uh, Chairman uh, Devin Nunez, uh, yet claimed the FBI and DOJ would not have sought surveillance warrants to spy on one-time Trump campaign advisor Carter Page without the infamous Democrat-funded anti-Trump dossier. Well, the White House responded by saying the memo raises serious concerns about the integrity of decisions made at the highest levels of the Department of Justice and the FBI. I would agree in different ways, perhaps, than were originally touted. The president, uh, as he uh, did for the original GOP memo, has several days to consider whether he should block the release of the national security, or rather for national security reasons, of the Democrat version. Uh, The uh, GOP memo has fueled accusations from Republicans of bias against Trump uh, by top FBI and uh, Justice Department officials. Schiff today said Democrats want to make sure the White House does not redact our memo for political purposes. Sarah Sanders, the White House press secretary, suggested the president would be open to releasing the counter memo as well. So the back and forth uh, continues. Um, The furor over the um, memo on the GOP size, the surveillance memo, is only the beginning, according to the chairman of the Intelligence Committee. Um, Nunez said today that the release of the long-awaited document on alleged law enforcement surveillance abuse was just phase one of his investigation, and the next phase will involve probing the State Department for what he called um, inequalities uh, in their um, or rather irregularities. What we will do in phase two is follow the facts where they lead. And when we get enough facts, we will figure out a way to let the American people know. Um, He has come under heavy fire in recent weeks for making public the four-page Republican-authored memo on the use of Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act under the Obama administration. But after the memo was uh, published on Friday with the blessing of the White House, uh, the chairman and the uh, GOP uh, committee members made clear uh, that they're just getting started. So this is the beginning of what apparently will be a much longer and more arduous uh, process. Um, Meanwhile, uh, let me get this um, information up very quickly. No, that's not what I was looking for. Uh, There are growing accusations about uh, the informants on the original um, uh, dossier uh, were from the DNC and the um, and the Clinton campaigns. Now, I'm, I'm not seeing the information, so I don't want to. Uh, try to do this uh, from memory. But nonetheless, uh, that's another developing side story. And there's also a report that's expected shortly about um, the uh, use of emails by the Clinton um, State Department and the Clinton campaign that is uh, due out here shortly as well. So it uh, it will continue for some time. Meanwhile, a bipartisan immigration proposal has surfaced in the Senate only to be quickly knocked down by the president via Twitter earlier today. Republican Senator John McCain and Democratic Senator Chris Coons, they plan to propose legislation that would shield the deportation of uh, immigrants who earned the U.S. illegal uh, or rather entered the U.S. illegally as children known as dreamers. Um, helped by the uh, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, or DACA. The bill also would strengthen border security, but it wouldn't provide the $25 billion Trump's wa- Trump wants rather for the U.S.-Mexico border wall. But before the Senate had a chance to consider the narrow plan, the president uh, pretty much rejected it. Any deal on DACA that does not include strong border security and the desperately needed wall is a total waste of time. March 5th is rapidly approaching, and the Dems seem not to care about DACA. Make a deal, Trump 
Trump tweeted. Well, Senator McCain and Coons said in a statement that their bill was designed to focus on two pressing border issues, the Dreamers and border security. So lawmakers could focus on completing the long overdue budget deal. The McCain-Coons plan is a more modest approach than Trump uh, has sought for protecting the estimated 1.8 million young immigrants. The measure lacks Trump's demands for limiting the relatives that Dreamers can sponsor for citizenship and ending a visa lottery aimed at admitting more immigrants from diverse places uh, around the world. So that's pretty much a no-go in terms of the president's signature, although uh, was introduced today, and whether or not members of Congress will embrace it remain to be seen. Meanwhile, while the president's uh, critics and editorial writers uh, who've spent decades living in New York and Washington refer to the president's wall as silly, stupid, and useless, which, by the way, Congress had already approved of uh, some sessions ago, those who actually work on the border say fences are effective. The evidence shows that barriers work. That's a quote from Pete Hemingway, a 22-year veteran of the Border Patrol and former director of the agency's tactical and rescue teams. In her Urban areas, the wall makes sense. In more remote areas, sensors and mobile cameras may be the right choice, but you can't say fences don't work. Before San Diego built a 46-mile fence in the late 1980s, border agents were overwhelmed by illegal traffic from Mexico. In 1986, the agency arrested 629,656 illegal immigrants, almost the population of Las Vegas. Today, the 60-mile sector is almost entirely fenced. Apprehensions uh, last year fell to 26,000. 86, a 95% drop as double fencing is the most popular in uh, rather in the most populated areas, replaced barbed wire and six foot high steel. Um, uh, steel mats. Fences in San Diego pushed migrants east to Yuma, Arizona, where agents made 138,436 arrests in 2006. After erecting 126 miles of fence, illegal traffic fell 90 percent to 12,847 in 2017. We've proved Walls works as a senior Yuma agent not authorized to speak on the record, but that doesn't mean we need a 30-foot wall uh, from sea to shining sea. The wall system the president is talking about includes a physical wall, but also a fiber optic sensor cable, radars, roads, and lights. And again, the back and forth continues. Will they uh, fund the government? Will they resolve the immigration issues? And what about that big, beautiful wall? Well, we're going to take a break. We've got news and traffic coming at the top of the hour. Then in the second hour, we're going to talk with congressional candidate Mark Callahan. He aspires to serve in the 5th Congressional District. And we'll talk with Dr. J. Scott Turner, author of Purpose and Desire. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Dr. J. Scott Turner. He's the author of Purpose and Desire. It's a book on science and how intentionality and purpose are excluded from the study of biology and the cost to science. As a result, uh, Dr. Turner will join us later this hour. I had the opportunity to attend the Speak Life event that was held uh, here in Portland just a few weeks ago and met uh, Mark Callahan, who is seeking to be the next congressman from the 5th District here in the state of Oregon, and had a brief conversation and wanted to give you an opportunity to learn about uh, this campaign. His name is Mark Callahan. He's a father, an average American, and he loves his country. Uh, he deep, cares deeply about freedom and joins us today to talk about why he wants to be a member of Congress representing the 5th District here in the state of Oregon. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, good afternoon, Georgine. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Well, let me give you an opportunity to uh, tell our listeners who you are and why you think you should represent the 5th District uh, here in Oregon. 
Well, I'm a, I'm a Republican conservative, and I, as, said, as you said in your intro, I, I do love our country. I have a couple daughters myself, and um, it got to the point for me where I just had to get off the couch, stop watching TV and complaining all the time, and actually get out there, take action, and do something. And so that's when I, I, I'm running for office uh, for Congress against uh, the incumbent uh, Democrat that's in there. I won't name him, but uh, it's in Oregon's 5th Congressional District, and I feel the Lord's guiding me on this one, and, and uh, I'm just out there on the trail. You are um, running to displace Representative Kurt Schrader, who is uh, currently there. He was elected in 2009. You've also sought a seat in the U.S. Senate. Tell us about that campaign, and uh, then we can talk a bit about what your priorities are. Sure. Uh, yeah, in uh, 2016, I was in the general election with uh, our 35-year career politician, New Yorker, Senator Ron Wyden, and um, I, I did pretty good. Like, we got about 651,000 votes statewide, and so I'm the type of person I make lemonade out of lemons, and so I, I figured that 651,000 people that don't like our uh, New York senator, so... Basically, I decided to uh, give it another run. I compared my my statewide numbers with uh, the numbers I got in CD5 as a subset of my statewide numbers. And we're within a few thousand of actually winning the district and getting this thing done. So uh, that's one of the many reasons why I'm running for office. And uh, I just need to get in there. We need another strong Republican conservative in, in Congress from Oregon. Uh, right now, we just have one Republican from mm-hmm. Eastern Oregon. I happened to meet him uh, this last weekend. At the Freedom uh, event? At the Freedom Rally yeah, here yeah. in uh, Portland, yeah. Excellent. Well, let's talk about your top campaign issues. I think a lot of us are a bit skeptical when we hear politicians outline what their initiatives and priorities are. So l- let me give you an opportunity to tell us what your priorities would be and why we should believe that you um, will live up to the commitments that you're making as a candidate. Well, um, my issues on my issues page on my website at CallahanForOregon.com lists a lot of things that are important to me in terms of issues and in terms of getting our country back on the right track. So I'll focus on a couple of them mm-hmm. here. Um, my number one issue is immigration. We need to get our immigration fix, uh, system fixed. Um, I'm going to Washington, D.C. to help our President Trump actually do just that, because right now we have uh, the DACA program that's being disputed, and we have illegal immigrants here uh, literally broken into our country. And we need to get, a, we need to get our arms around this in terms of fixing our immigration, saying no to amnesty, no to DACA, and we need to build that wall on the southern border to secure our southern border. Two, um, the second issue that I'm, I want to get done back there is help our veterans. Um, my, both my parents were in the Navy. Uh, my dad was a machinist mate in the 70s. My mom was a data systems technician, and she went back into the Navy reserves in the 90s as a mess cook. And my, my wife is actually a Coast Guard veteran as well. So uh, I, I'm very. I had actually have some skin in the game in terms of helping our veterans in their health care and getting them better health care. For they they have served our country with honor and integrity, and we need to take care of our veterans. So I, I just see that as a problem right now, especially with those stories uh, you heard a few years back coming out of mm-hmm. Arizona with uh, veterans waiting on the waiting list for so long. But uh, yeah, we need to get uh, immigration taken care of, secure our border, and we need to uh, take care of our veterans. Now, as you know, the president introduced his uh, outline of immigration. Uh, reform. Uh, Virtually both sides of the aisle complained about aspects of it. It included the wall. It included 1.9 million uh, DACA recipients given a pathway to citizenship. And earlier today, uh, John McCain and uh, I don't remember the senator on the other side of the aisle have presented uh, what they are calling a DACA fix that would uh, would not uh, address the wall at all. Um, Do you support the president's plan as it's been introduced? And what do you think about this alternate plan? So basically, I support our president and what he wants to do in terms of improving border security and 
I disagree with the McCain proposal uh, in that McCain is, I, I don't actually consider him a conservative myself, but um, I, I agree with Trump. I'm going to go in there. I'm going to support our president, and we're going to get this job done in terms of securing uh, the southern border and uh, fixing the uh, immigration issues, uh, illegal immigration issues that are happening in our country. How big, big a challenge do you see um, beating the 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 incumbent and becoming a conservative uh, representative for District 5 in the state of Oregon? Well, I, I know that uh, the incumbent has been in there since uh, Obama came into office, and uh, it's time for him to go as well. So um, we saw a great swell of conservatism and, and Republican voting in the 2016 election. And I, I think I'm going to ride the Trump wave here, basically, because people are, are sick and tired in terms of liberal policies and dem- liberal Democrat policies. And we need a change. And Trump was the one to get in there and start shaking things up to get the changes made. But uh, yeah, we need it. I mean, I, in terms of being able to beat uh, the incumbent, my opponent ultimately in the general election, I think I think it can be done because Marion County, for example, one of the counties in my district, voted for Trump uh, this last election. And if I can get the other um, four and four and a half, five counties to to vote Republican as well, then I think we can get this thing done. As I said earlier, um, I looked at my numbers from CD5, from my statewide numbers, and uh, I'm within a few thousand of actually pulling this off and getting it done. In terms of money, obviously the incumbent has uh, more money than I do, but it doesn't actually take a lot of money to actually get this thing done, in my opinion, although donations do help. But um, I'll give you an example. My my former opponent, Ron Wyden, spent $9 million in 2016 to beat little old me, who spent $33,000. So his cost per vote was like 8 bucks and forty. Two cents. Mine was only four cents per vote. So if I can get 651,000 votes statewide on $33,000 budget, I think I can probably beat the incumbent in District 5. Well, if uh, listeners are interested in learning more about your uh, your efforts and your campaign, where should they go? Uh, they can go to my campaign website at uh, CallahanForOregon.com. That's CallahanForOregon.com. Again, Callahan, that's with two L's, for Oregon.com. Well, Mark Callahan, best of luck to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us, and uh, we'll certainly follow your campaign very closely. Thank you so much. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Dr. J. Scott Turner. His book is titled Purpose and Desire. Uh, And it really uh, points to the question of what distinguishes the study of biology from other sciences, what makes something alive, and why modern Darwinism has failed to explain it. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guest asks the question, what makes something alive and why Darwinism has led us to a scientific dead end? Well, Dr. J. Scott Turner is a State University of New York or SUNY professor. He's a biologist and physiologist, and he argues that modern Darwinism, materialistic and mechanistic biases have left us rather unable to define what life is and only an openness to the qualities of life's purposefulness, intelligence, and striving will move the field forward. Well, in his book, Purpose and Desire, What Makes Something Alive, and Why Modern Darwinism Has Failed to Explain It, he draws on the work of Claude Bernard, a contemporary of uh, Darwin, revered amongst uh, physiologists as the founder of experimental physiology to build on Bernard's dangerous idea 
of homeostasis, which seeks to identify what makes life a unique phenomenon of nature. To fully understand life, he suggests, includes including its evolution, he argues that we must move beyond strictly enforced boundaries of mechanism and materialism to explore living nature as distinctly purposeful and driven. It's a thoughtful appeal to widen our perspective of biology that's grounded solidly in scientific evidence. And in the book, Purpose and Desire, he seeks to widen that perspective and bridge the ideological evolutionary divide by recovering evolution as a distinctive phenomenon of purposeful life. Well, Dr. J. Scott Turner is a leading biologist and physiologist and professor of biology at the State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry in Syracuse, New York. His work has uh, garnered attention in the New York Times Book Review, Science, Nature, American Scientist, National Geographic Online, NPR, Science Friday, and other leading media outlets. He's the author of two books with Harvard University Press, The Extended Organism, The Physiology of Animal-Built Structures, and The Tinker Accomplice, How Design Emerges from Life Itself, published in 2007. He joins us today to talk about his latest book, Purpose and Desire, What Makes Something Alive and Why Modern Darwinism Has Failed to Explain It. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thanks, Georgine. It's, uh, it's, it's delightful to be here. Thanks for having me on your show. Well, you're certainly welcome. You begin by uh, quoting uh, uh, something of a caricature of uh, Provine, Crick, Dawkins, and Danette to make your point that there is a uh, there's a gaping hole in the science of life um, that it's sort of the elephant in the room that science doesn't want to acknowledge. Let's begin with the premise of the book and uh, why you think it's important in quoting these uh, these four to draw our attention to what's uh, not being given attention within uh, the scientific community that's studying life? Well, if you speak to most biologists, uh, in public anyway, they uh, try to avoid squishy things like intentionality and purposefulness and things like this. The common uh, reflex is to uh, bracket these things in scare quotes, you know, as if you really don't mean what you're saying. And, and, and this, is, this is a phenomenon that's occupied biology actually for most of the 20th century, but it really uh, has not been the historical norm in biology. The, the historic norm has been to frankly acknowledge that living things are purposeful. They have intention. They, they are designed. And, uh, you know, one can have lots of questions about where those phenomena come from, but the thing that strikes one if you look at anything alive is just how purposeful, uh, intentional, and uh, often well-designed they are. And the four quotes that I uh, put, uh, that I opened the book with uh, exemplifies this kind of this kind of public face of biology that uh, we present to the to the uh, to the general public. That's you know it's, it's it's really kind of a bleak world out there. You know, there's no purpose. There's no intentionality or just bags of molecules and uh, these kinds of things. And it is a caricature. Uh, these are very uh, sophisticated thinkers about evolution. But this is the public face that we're putting forth. That is, it's not allowed to talk about. The most distinctive things about life, which is that it's purposeful and it's intentional, and and there are some really important questions and unanswered questions about where those attributes come from. 
You recall a conversation you had with some associates and students uh, regarding the very problem of intentionality and purposefulness, and you asked the question of a friend, what if intentionality is real? What if intentionality is not only real, but is actually the most important attribute of life? Could we then be scientists true to our calling if we ignored it? And is that part of the problem uh, in including uh, intentionality and purpose uh, within the scientific context that it questions um, or that the fear is that it calls into question science at all when it is applied to life. It is a problem, and that particular conversation, you know, we were we were trying to uh, explore this very question. You know, what if what if the most important thing about life is actually its intentionality and its purposefulness? You know, how can we possibly uh, even uh, try to understand it if we immediately shove those things off to the side and the response of my colleague, of course, was that no, we could not be biologists. We could be philosophers or theologians, but we couldn't uh, claim uh, being biology. And this is one of the things that most scientists, uh, biologists in particular, have to face uh, quite early on in their career. It's 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 kind of a Hobson's choice. You know, you can mm-hmm. either uh, acknowledge the the frank intentionality and purposefulness of living things, but then you're not allowed to be a real biologist, or you can uh, ignore those things and be a real biologist, but then you're ignoring really the most important things about life itself. And, you know, it's, it's, it has led us into um, really kind of a, kind of a scientific uh, dead end. And, and, and despite, you know, science being a marvelous enterprise and, you know, lots of uh, research, interesting research going on, uh, lots of interesting products coming out of it, it's not really getting us towards the philosophy, really, of what life is. And my argument is that we can't really have a coherent theory of life uh, or even a coherent theory of evolution if we don't acknowledge those very important uh, and essential attributes of living things. I mentioned earlier that uh, your earlier book, The Tinker's Accomplice, you were um, called into question by one of the critics of the book, the chapter that dealt with intentionality and purpose, um, and your credentials as a true scientist as opposed to someone who is um, a sort of a closet uh, Christian or someone whose theology are attempting to impose uh, into scientific theory. Uh, you you have dealt with that, but this book seems to double down on the very thing that you were uh, critiqued for because, as I think you argue in the book, this is central to our understanding of life. Well, yes, I did get taken to task by that one reviewer. Uh, uh, this one reviewer was quite uh, appalled that I was actually uh, uh, talking about intentionality in a book about science. And this is an example of the Hobbes' choice that we all face. You know, if you talk about these kinds of uh, kind of squishy ideas uh, that are really essential, you're sort of drummed out of the core. And and this is one of the uh, sad things about our public uh, debate about this. And it's essential that we have a sound public debate. Uh, you know, one of the one of the criticisms uh, or forms of criticism is you know oh well you know you're you're not a real evolutionist or you're not a real scientist because you're not a member of the plug of the club and 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 this uh, you know sort of builds this uh, this uh, kind of self-referential bubble that people uh, converse in that just won't admit any outside ideas and you're right I did double down in this book this new book uh, on that uh, argument because uh, this is where the logic has led me but I am coming into the question from outside you know standard evolutionary theory that 
doesn't mean that I don't have you know important things to say about evolution because the interface between evolution and physiology has been a central part of my career for more than 30 years now. But uh, you know this notion that you cannot possibly uh, comment on this or criticize our our lovely theories that we're looking at inside our bubbles. Uh, this is an example of one of the things that I think is driving biology and evolution toward a crisis. So let me ask you what your your critic um, suggested. Is your primary motivation as a scientist to be true to your art, or is it as a man of faith attempting to confirm what you've already uh, come to believe about uh, purposefulness and intentionality in creation or in uh, biological order? Well, this is one of the problems about uh, the, these closed bubbles. You know, one of the things that, that uh, we don't teach uh, biology students these days is philosophy, and mm-hmm. that makes makes these students uh, really completely incapable of understanding that evolution actually derives from a set of philosophical presumptions about the world, and there are other ways of thinking philosophically about the world out there. And and uh, you know the, the 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 notion that this one particular philosophical viewpoint, namely mechanism and materialism and reductionism, is the only scientifically legitimate way to think about science. This is something that's, that's actually a very uh, new phenomenon in the entire history of the biological sciences. And, and so the issue of, of you, know, the, you know, are you confirming your, your uh, biases in religious thought or biases in philosophical thought, uh, you know, we as scientists, and I include a lot of, most of my colleagues in this, we as scientists, we really strive very hard to to you know have nature tell us the answers to the questions that we ask without trying to filter it through uh, some kind of philosophical bias but at the end of the day you do have to build your ideas about life around some philosophical foundation and and the notion that you know it's somehow impermissible to speak about intentionality and purpose, uh, thought, you know, what are those kinds of things? Uh, this, this, is, this is something that that's, uh, is a product of really uh, 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 channeling people into this one particular philosophical bubble. And, and my argument is that, you know, we need to open up the bubble a little bit. We need to start, uh, uh, you know, admitting other ways of looking at life and thinking about life uh, philosophically. And, it's not entirely a closed club among my colleagues. You know, you see many, you know, I, I know many people who are very serious questioners of, 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 of life from different philosophical perspectives, and, and they're very, very good scientists. But one of the problems is that, you know, you, you have a kind of a dominant um, a way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very public, uh, publicly prominent uh, way of looking at it. And and one of the pernicious things is that it really uh, poisons the world. I, I think taints the public debate about evolution, uh, which includes uh, things like, well, how do we teach our kids about evolution? You know, what do we teach them about it? Or what do we teach them about how it works? And 
and and because we're really talking about uh, you know people who defend who are defending a a kind of piece of turf against uh, all philosophical uh, critics of it, uh, then this has led to some I, I think kind of unfortunate uh, uh, public battles over how we teach evolution in schools. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. We're talking with Dr. J. Scott Turner. He's a leading biologist and physiologist, professor of biology at the State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry in Syracuse, New York. We'll be back in a moment to continue our conversation on his book, Purpose and Desire. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Dr. J. Scott Turner. He's the author of Purpose and Desire, a book published by Harper One, What Makes Something Alive and Why Modern Darwinism Has Failed to Explain It. Uh, you suggest in the book that you've come to believe that there's something presently wrong with how scientists think about life, its existence, its origins, and evolution, and that this is really a, a relatively recent um, narrowing of uh, scientific inquiry. Can you give us a, a bit of the history as you do uh, in the book of how we arrived at a point in which um, intentionality and purpose, for example, are no longer considered legitimate uh, areas for scientific uh, inquiry? Well, it's a very interesting history, and I do go into uh, the history uh, to, to uh, a pretty considerable extent in the book because I think it's important that the history be told uh, in, uh, I think, a, a way that accurately reflects what the actual history is. And if you look at the grand scheme of this, let's start from Charles Darwin, for example. Uh, Darwin actually had a very nuanced view of, of what drove evolution. He clearly regarded uh, natural selection as important. He regarded heredity as important. But he also regarded the phenomenon of adaptation and the ability to compete uh, in nature as important aspects of this. And and what happened uh, towards the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century, Darwin himself came under quite a bit of uh, criticism. And it's a historical period that uh, people have variously labeled the crisis of Darwinism or the eclipse of Darwinism or those kinds of things. And what emerged out of that was uh, a completely non-Darwinian way of thinking about evolution, uh, Thomas Hunt Morgan, and anyone who's taken biology knows about Morgan because they've probably done laboratory exercises with uh, fruit flies and genetics. Uh, as a consequence of that, uh, uh, Darwinism became transformed uh, in, in an odd way into being completely a theory of heredity. And of course, this was Thomas Hunt Morgan's uh, basic uh, approach to evolution. He regarded the gene as prime. He regarded genes as the driver of evolution. And somehow that viewpoint, which is really anti-Darwinian, uh, became relabeled as neo-Darwinism. And so consequently, modern Darwinism is really very, very different from the way that uh, Charles Darwin himself thought about it, in fact. And I argue in the book, actually, that it's a stretch to even call it Darwinian, that, uh, that this notion that it's just genes, uh, it's just genetic heredity that actually uh, is is the object of selection and, and what drives evolution is really a non-Darwinian way of thinking about it. And of course, one of the things that happens there is that 
uh, you fall very easily into this machine metaphor of what natural selection is, where you know where mechanism and uh, and uh, materialism start to uh, loom very large in the way that you think, and and it has totally um, obscured the the really nuanced way of of thinking about evolution that was exemplified in Charles Darwin. And Darwin himself actually drew inspiration from older uh, vitalist uh, traditions about life, which was which were quite uh, open about accepting that life was intentional and uh, purposeful and and uh, all those kinds of important attributes. But one of the sad consequences of the mechanistic approach to life is that we really have have divorced uh, the science of life from the phenomenon of life itself because we're ignoring its most important attributes. Um, you make the statement that um, uh, that what's happened is we've drawn modern biology into a bit of a philosophical pickle uh, to it. If biology claims to be a distinct science, on what grounds is the distinction built? And then later um, you uh, you point out where then should life's distinctive attribute be sought? And you argue in the book that agency is where the distinction can be reliably drawn. Um, those are important questions that distinguish the biology from other sciences. Can you expand on that a bit? Sure. The, the, the whole phenomenon of agency is another one of these interesting uh, and, and subtle ways of, of, of thinking about life. And, of course, uh, I don't think any biologist would deny that there's agency in life, but the agency that they tend to fall into and, and, uh, and, and give uh, attention to is, is the same kind of agency that, that say, uh, an engine uh, can be to drive a car forward. You know, that, that's an agent that's doing something, but it's strictly a machine. And the, uh, the other type of agency, which I think is absolutely essential, is a kind of purposeful agency, the agency that is really unique to life. And uh, to carry on the analogy of the engine, the engine might be one kind of agent, but the person who drives the car from one place to another is is a very purposeful agent, and and I, I'm 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 arguing that that if if you limit your thinking to just the kind of mechanical agency that we tend to fall into now, you're not going to be able to define life. Uh, you simply cannot come up with the ability to distinguish life from uh, non-life. Even though if you look at something living, you very quickly and easily say that well, yes, that's alive, and something else uh, is not. But uh, when you take our modern mechanistic view of it, that is uh, this kind of mechanical passive agency, as it's been called, then you end up not being able to define life at all. And the only way that you really can distinguish life from non-life, I argue in the book, is that is that you have to account for this kind of purposeful agency. That is, life is intentional. It's purposeful. It strives toward ends. And, and uh, that, unfortunately, is one of the philosophical no-nos that uh, we as biologists are trained to avoid. In Purpose and Desire, you make the point that what's at stake is whether there will be a coherent theory of life, and without that coherent theory, whatever we think about life doesn't hold water. Yes, that's right. That's the problem with incoherency. And, and, <laughs> and you know, you, you can, you can uh, you know, if you approach this problem from Outside the, the philosophical bubble, if you will, you start to see all kinds of incoherencies that that um, that um, 
the people inside the bubble may not be able to see or that they have explained away to their satisfaction. And one of the most uh, one of the most um, um, obvious ones, and one that's probably familiar to most of your listeners, is this notion of of, of what adaptation is. And, and adaptation, of course, is the tendency of organisms to fit well into their environments. And the uh, standard uh, genetic explanation of, of uh, adaptation is that you have selection for adaptation genes or good function genes or apt function genes or whatever uh, you would like to uh, call them. And, of course, how do you identify apt function genes? Well, you identify them as the genes being selected. So you end up in this kind of, uh, in this kind of uh, a little uh, circular bit of circular reasoning that that uh, uh, people from outside the bubble have been pointing out for a long time. You know, creationists and intelligent design uh, theory people have been saying this for ages. But uh, you know, because you know we're 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 encased in this nice, comfortable bubble. You know, it's very easy to to uh, dismiss that. And that's uh, that's one obvious example. But you see it throughout uh, uh, evolutionary thought. You know, if I. One of the reasons why I went through all the historical uh, development of biological thought is that I first of all wanted to uh, show that you know these were brilliant men who, who uh, well, and women. I sorry, I don't mean to <laughs> leave, leave, leave leave out the the the, the other gender, but uh, you know there were brilliant people who have been thinking about evolution for a long period of time. But they've been thinking about it from inside uh, this this philosophical presumption, and and ultimately, in all of these very brilliant ideas about how life originated, about how how <clears throat> um, uh, organisms fit into their environment, about natural selection, all these brilliant things ultimately have to come to some point where uh, you introduce kind of what I call magical thinking. You know that 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 you admit that okay the intentionality is there and the purpose is there, but we're going to put it in quotes and, and call it apparent intentionality and apparent design and those kinds of things uh, so that we don't have to think about it, mm-hmm. so we can attend to our our beautiful theories. And, and, uh, and, and so these kinds of incoherencies are rife throughout the history of, of modern uh, evolutionism and modern biology, and, and uh, they're mostly unacknowledged, in my opinion. Well, I wish we had more time. We didn't really have a chance to get into the phenomenon of homeostasis, which is uh, uh, throughout your book. Uh, But I do appreciate your taking the time to talk with a novice such as myself and our listening audience. (laughs) Once again, the title of the book is Purpose and Desire, What Makes Something Alive and Why Modern Darwinism Has Failed to Explain It. It's really a, a fascinating examination of how things are uh, examined from a scientific perspective and what's left out. Thank you so much for uh, for talking with me. I appreciate it. Georgine, thank you for having me on your show. Bye-bye. Again, the book is titled Purpose and Desire, What Makes Something Alive and Why Modern Darwinism Has Failed to Explain It, published by Harper One. Uh, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, settled science has apparently just become, well, unsettled again. For decades, the federal government has told us that we need to uh, cut fats, we need to increase our carbohydrates, and they're relying on settled nutrition science. Now, those of us who've been paying attention for a while know that there's no such thing as settled nutrition science, but there's a new study that will probably be unsettled at some point in the future that shows the advice 
advice that's been uh, given is completely wrong. Well, that's the conclusion of a massive new study published in Lancet that followed 135,335 people in 18 countries on five continents. Well, the study found that the consumption of fat was associated with a lower risk of mortality, while the consumption of carbohydrates was associated with a higher risk. It found that uh, the kind of fat didn't matter when it came to heart disease and that saturated fat consumption was inversely related to strokes. Well, the research says, um, ever so politely, that dietary guidelines should be reconsidered in light of those findings. Hmm. Do you remember just a few years ago when we weren't supposed to eat apples? Well, this research adds to a growing body of evidence that the government's war on fats has been dangerously misguided, if not deadly. For example, there was a study in 2010 in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, uh, and after looking at years of research, concluded that there is no significant evidence for concluding that dietary saturated fat is associated with an increased risk of coronary heart disease. While other studies have found that whole milk lowers the risk of obesity. Well, that's just the opposite of what you might think. Yet the government still admonishes against saturated fats, tells people to drink skim milk. Meanwhile, government, uh, uh, their push for low-fat, high-carb diets has contributed to the explosion of obesity in the U.S. The national obesity rate has been relatively flat 1960 to 1980, the first year the USD issued its nutrition guidelines. But less than a decade after 1980, obesity rates shot up from 15 to 23 percent. But don't expect the USDA to reconsider its guidelines, much less admit it was wrong based on the new findings, since doing so would undermine the government's credibility. Well, this is the problem when science becomes politicized, and it's a prime example of why the public should be extremely wary of any claims that science is settled on any issue as complicated as health, nutrition, say, uh, predict, uh, predicted uh, change in global climate 100 years from now, and so on. Anyway, sort of an interesting turn of events um, in science. Well, taking a look at uh, this week on the program, tomorrow we're going to talk with David Kyle Foster. He's a Ph.D., and he is the producer of a um, documentary. It's a DVD, Transformed. I had the opportunity to see it when I was in uh, San Diego this past summer at the Restored uh, Hope Conference. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to learn about this very useful tool for those who hold to a biblical view of sexuality. David Kyle Foster will be my guest tomorrow. On Wednesday, Tom Holliday will join us, putting it all together, or rather putting it together again when it's all fallen apart, Seven Principles for Rebuilding Your Life. And we're also going to talk with Sam Carpenter, who is seeking to be Oregon's next governor. And we know that there is a front runner on the Republican side, although there's been no vote cast, at least that's what we're being told, that um, he is the front runner. Well, Mr. Uh, Carpenter suggests that he should be the next governor of Oregon, and we're going to give him an opportunity to tell you why that is the case. He'll join us tomorrow after my conversation with uh, Tom Holliday, putting it together again when it's all fallen apart, seven principles for rebuilding your life. And uh, we're working on some other things for the week as well, but those are some of the uh, some of the highlights. So we hope you will join us uh, for that. Just one other thing I wanted to mention uh, on um, uh, next week, we're going to have our friends from India partner with us here in studio. And I'm looking forward to uh, once again giving you an opportunity uh, to get caught up on what they're doing. And their their focus remains what it has always been, saving girls from sex trafficking in India. But their focus is, is going to narrow for this particular campaign. We're not just going to look at little girls whose lives are devastated uh, by what has become common practice, although technically illegal, 
about little boys as well. And so while the program, and you may have heard some of the uh, commercials um, telling you about that upcoming Radiothon, uh, while the subject is very sobering, it's a very serious subject, we're going to cover it in a way that doesn't cross any bounds. Um, but I wanted to just give you a heads up to begin thinking about uh, India Partner and that event that's coming up on the uh, on uh, next week, I should say. Also, if you didn't have the opportunity to listen to the program earlier in the day, I had a conversation with Lois Anderson. She's the executive director of Oregon Right to Life. She came to us with an action alert. Last legislative session, there was a bill that threatened the lives of those suffering from Alzheimer's, uh, dementia, and uh, mental illness uh, being given uh, no option uh, with regard to caregivers and uh, their freedom to end nutrition and hydration. It's a very important action alert. The bill is back. And while this is a session, I wanted to make sure you were aware of it and the opportunity that you have to influence the outcome of the debate that's going to go on over the next 34 days in uh, Oregon's capital, Salem. That's House Bill 4135. If you didn't have the opportunity to hear our conversation, I would encourage you to go to the podcast at kpdq.com. I spoke with her in our third segment about uh, uh, 35 minutes into the program. You can listen to that conversation for all the important details. You can also go to Oregon Right to Life, and uh, they have uh, great information there for you on this uh, House Bill 4135 that's uh, currently back in circulation in Salem. Uh, In addition, they have a way for you to connect with your elected representatives there. It's a very easy way to communicate with them. You can tell them uh, where you're located if you don't know the name of that individual, and they can pinpoint uh, which uh, senator and which uh, representative is representing you and your interests. So again, my conversation with Lois Anderson earlier today, about uh, half an hour into the program, you can go to kpdq.com and check out the podcast for more information. Uh, on how to listen to that conversation. You can also go to Oregon Right to Life and find uh, the action alert information there on House Bill 4135 and a way to connect with your elected representatives in uh, Salem. And again, this is a short session. They have 35 days total. Uh, so uh, your action very quickly is uh, is important. Well, we're out of time. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering, James Blind for producing, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.